Take your Bibles and turn with me to John's Gospel once again, chapter 6. If you're new to us or visiting with us, we're studying through the Gospel of John. We've now gotten to the sixth chapter. If you've been with us along the way, you remember that in the beginning of our study, we looked at the purpose of John's epistle or, or gospel. And the purpose of John's gospel is where he, he talked about the fact at the end of the book that there are many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these ones are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And so as we go through the Gospel of John, we are seeing a, kind of a sequence of signs, miracles that Jesus did that give us evidence and give validity to his claim to be the Messiah. And so as we've been going along, we've been looking at various things. We've also been looking at some of the teaching and some of the interactions that Jesus had with different people along the way. Last chapter, in chapter 5, we looked at one of the signs, which was when Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed at the Pool of Bethesda. Subsequent to that, there was some interaction that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders. And we looked at the various things that Jesus said about himself in chapter 5 that were evidences that should have been sufficient evidence to the Jewish people that this man who did this miracle is their Messiah. And yet Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life and they testify of me, but you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And then Jesus leaves. He's been in the region of Judea. Now think with me of Palestine or Israel and the regions of Israel. We saw Jesus in a part of the book of John down in Judah. We saw Jesus in a part of the book of John in Samaria. Remember chapter 4, the woman at the well in the region of Samaria, which is kind of the middle region of Israel. And now we see him in chapter 6 back up in his homeland. It's the region of Israel that's in the north. It's Galilee. We're talking about the Sea of Galilee. Now, when we say the Sea of Galilee, we kind of think of like something like, you know, a big ocean. But that's not, of course, what it is, is it? It's more along the line of the size of Yellowstone Lake. Something along that size. And Jesus is there along the shore ministering to crowds of people who have come to listen to him. And in that interaction, we see unfolding what we see in John chapter 6. We're going to read the text, and we're going to look to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we're going to try to study it for a few minutes this morning. I want you to notice things that are in the text. Uh, it's very important to us that we hone in as we read this. You know, as I'm reading, I hope you're following along in your book, in your scripture, and really keying in on some of the key points that we see in this miracle. This is an amazing miracle. When Jesus feeds 5,000 men, who knows how many women and children, 
who were gathered there along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So notice with me what it says. After this, that's chapter 5, right? After chapter 5, after those events, Jesus has now gone away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him. Why were they following him? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Now this gives us the time of these events in the next verse. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was right at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, seeing that a large crowd is coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that all these people can eat? He, Jesus, said this to him, Philip, but he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a bite. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here. He has with him five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and after he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish. And he gave them as much as they wanted. When they had all eaten as much as they wanted, they were full. He said to his disciples, gather over up the leftover fragments, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, Indeed, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and by force take him and make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this text this morning, I pray that you would help us as we just focus on this passage for a few minutes to under its, understand its impact. 
pray, Lord, that you would help us to see not only your might and your power, the Lord, we may see some of the greater reasons and purposes behind what you do. Lord, I thank you that even when you put us to the test, like you put Philip to the test, you know what you're going to do. We may not know. We may not know how we can buy bread for so many people. Or whatever the thing is you're asking us to do. But you do. You have a plan. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us, Father, to be like the little boy who had his lunch. Mom had given it to him, no doubt, and he'd hoarded it carefully so he would have something to eat. And yet he was willing to give it away for others. Help us to be willing to give ourselves away for the lives of others. Lord, lead us into this passage today, I pray. Give each of us exactly what we need to see. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to consider the feeding of the 5,000 this morning, this miracle that Jesus did. I forgot to do one thing, and I'm going to do it quick. Take me just a second. I've got to turn on my pen so I can write if I want. You know, if you think about this miracle, in many ways, it is the most spectacular of Jesus' miracles. 5,000 men, you know, who knows how many children, who knows how many women, they didn't count them, it just says about 5,000 men. About 5,000 men could attest, eyewitness account, this happened. This miracle appears in all four gospel accounts. There are not many miracles that Jesus did that are in every one of the gospels, right? Not not many. This one is. That's important to note. Now, in each one of the gospel accounts, the writer of that gospel will highlight a different thing about the miracle. Here we see a specific thing highlighted about this miracle, and we're going to draw ourselves into that in a minute in the text. But it is important to note that 5,000 men plus the women and the kids all could give an eyewitness account that Jesus fed us all as much as we could eat. And he did it with a little boy's lunch. That's an amazing miracle. This clearly is going to mark a turning point in the ministry of Jesus, and we'll bring that out in a minute. There's only really one other miracle that Jesus did that has anywhere near the amount of eyewitness account. Now, there were, Jesus did feed 4,000 on another time, but when we think about Another miracle that the Bible says there were eyewitnesses to. We find out in 1 Corinthians 15 that after his resurrection, he appeared to 500 people at the same time. And they could all give an eyewitness account and say, yes, we saw Jesus alive. But this is a huge deal. This is a spectacular miracle of Jesus. 
Now, when we read this passage, we sometimes forget that verse 1 and 2 condense almost a year of Jesus' public ministry is in one or two verses right there. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those writers of the gospel take a lot of time to tell us what happens in two verses in the Gospel of John. It is the time of Jesus' public ministry when people are flocking to him. And it tells us specifically here that a large crowd is following him. And they were doing so because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now that's what happens up in Galilee during this year. Large crowds have gathered to Jesus. And so it really gives us a context to understand how these large, con- the, these large crowds have come to hear of Jesus, to know who he is, and are now following him. They have seen Jesus do various miracles. One of them that happened during this year is Jesus' is teaching in Capernaum. He's teaching in a house. And there's a whole crowd of people gathered around the house. And four people have a buddy who can't walk. And they want to get him to Jesus. They come to the house where Jesus is. And they want to edge their way through the crowd. They cannot get into the house. So what did they do? Do they just take good enough Good enough, we just won't see Jesus today. No, they go and they go around the house, they climb up on the roof of the house, they take the tiles off the roof, they tie their belts to the guy's litter, and they lower him down in front of Jesus and basically say, Jesus, you're going to deal with our buddy. And it says in the scripture that when Jesus saw not this man's faith, laying on the pallet, when Jesus saw their faith, the four guys who led him through the roof, he healed him. And everybody saw it. And they went their way and they told somebody, you know what happened today? Jesus was teaching. And as he was teaching, four guys tore apart the roof. And they let their buddy down. And he hadn't been walking. And Jesus said to him, Your sins are forgiven you. And everybody said, how can you forgive sins? And Jesus said, get up and walk. But everybody was incensed because Jesus had forgiven the guy's sin. Thus claiming to be God. And so we see all through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke teaching of what happens in this year We also see them record the feeding of the 5,000, but what happens here is a part of the big picture. Large crowds are now following Jesus. What is interesting is by the time we get to to the end of this chapter, we're going to see this. Jesus is going to turn to Peter and say to him, are you going to go away too? Because everybody leaves. Everybody leaves. What happens in this chapter is a huge turning point. 
At the start of the chapter, there are crowds flocking Jesus. By the end of the chapter, Jesus looks at Peter and says, are you going to quit too? And Peter says, well, where else would we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? We don't understand what you're doing. We don't understand what you're saying, but we're going to follow you. We believe in you. But all he has is the 12 at the end of the chapter. This is a huge turning point. We go from crowds who are flocking Jesus to him basically alienating everybody. And we have to throw our hands up and say, why would he do that? How do you build a kingdom when you run everybody off? It's a mystery. Now, as we look at this, there are various things in the text. There's the crowd, isn't there? There are the disciples. We have two of them named specifically. One is Philip. He was in chapter 1. And Andrew. He was in chapter 1. Andrew was the guy who brought Simon Peter to Jesus. He said, come, I'm going to meet, I want you to meet a guy who is the Messiah. Now, we see Andrew bringing who? A little boy. And so we also see in this story a little boy, and it really is in the text, in the Greek language, it's a little boy. Can you imagine this kid? He has his lunch. Yeah, remember when you went to school? I mean, when I went to school, we had to pack a lunch. Well, I didn't pack the lunch. My mom did. You know, and then you'd open the lunch box, and you'd look at her, and what did I get today? And you'd try to trade with other kids at the table and all that. Remember those days? Try to trade for something bigger and better. But, you know, your lunch, man, that was an important part of your day when you were a boy, right? This boy's got a lunch from mom. Take care of your lunch, son. Jesus had need of it. And the boy was willing to give it up. Can you imagine him coming home? Mom, you will not believe what happened today, right? You'll never believe what happened today. We all said Jesus. We see Jesus in charge. Jesus says to Philip, how are we going to buy bread for all these people? Philip says, I don't got a clue. If we had a year's wages, we could not buy enough for everybody just to get a bite but Jesus did it. What was he doing? It says in the text, he was testing it. Have you ever had Jesus put you to the test? If you know him and you follow him, you have. He delights to do it. And it usually messes with our world, doesn't it? It usually messes with our world. We see Jesus in complete control, knowing all the while what he will do and feeding the crowd. Now I want to do something as we go through here. And I want to lead you into something. Go back with me in chapter 5 for a minute. In chapter 5, Jesus has said to these Jewish leaders in verse 39, you search the scriptures. You investigate carefully the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. 
Jesus is telling these Jewish people it is taken for granted that they are searching the scriptures. So here's what we're going to do together today. As we look at this, I got two things, two goals in mind for us as a group. One is, I want to preach on the text in a way that we understand some things that we leave here a little bit convicted. But I also want to do something that I, I, I hope will help you. I want to draw us into to a study of something, and that is, how do you search the scriptures? Maybe God's going to call you to be a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader, whatever the case may be. And, or you're, you're, going to, you're a dad or a mom, and you're going to be teaching your kids at home, and you're going to lay out the Bible, and you want to teach it. How do we do it? Where do you start? What does it mean to search the scriptures in order to teach it? And so I want to lead you into some understanding about how to do that with this passage. Okay? And so we're going to do two things this morning as we go through this. Now, the first thing that I want to say about searching the scripture is this. We talked about it briefly last week. Because Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you get eternal life, but you will not come to me. This is an important truth. You can search the scripture and not know Jesus. But you cannot know Jesus without the scripture. The two are irretrievably linked. Inextricably linked. But also, don't get it wrong. There are people all over the planet who probably know the book better than you do. But they do not know the one who gave it, Jesus Christ. The Jews did. You can search the scripture and miss Jesus because of something wrong in your heart. You can search the scripture and not know Jesus. But people cannot know Jesus unless they know the scripture. That's why when people go to a missionary, as a missionary, they go to a foreign field. They go to a place where people don't have a Bible. What do they do? They translate the Bible into their language so those people can read it. Because the scripture is where we find out who is Jesus and what has he done. That's why it's so important we search the scripture. Now, when we think about searching the scripture, here's some words. And I want you to think about it. I don't want you to miss these words. The word, one word is exegesis and the other is exposition. Now, the word exegesis is just a simple word which means to bring out what is there. Exposition is the explaining. This is the speaking, the presentation part of what is done in order to teach. So if you're going to do a lesson, if you're going to do a small group Bible study, the first thing that you're going to do in the week is you're going to take that passage and you're going to do some exegesis, even though you don't know what that word is. But what are you doing? You're going into the text, into the passage, and you're trying to say, what is in this passage? And then from that, you are going to expound on it when you teach it. 
people don't come to just hear your thoughts on the world. Right? We come to do what? Bible study. You don't come here just to hear what I think about the world. We come to study, to search the scripture. And so what we are doing is, in our private study, we are doing that exegesis. We are going into the passage, and we are leading out of the passage. We are pulling out of those verses what is there in order to expound it. So exegesis is the leading out of the passage what is there. Now, sometimes you hear this concept, expository preaching. What is expository preaching? That's what we try to do here. How is that different than other styles of preaching? There's kind of, some styles would be like a topical sermon. Where I would go home and I'd kind of sit at my chair and I'd pray maybe or I'd scratch my head and think, okay, God, what do those people really need to hear? What, what are they, you know, What's going on in their life that, that I need to address? And so I'm just spend my time thinking about that. And then I come up with a topic. Maybe, maybe it's something going on in the world or whatever. And then I say, okay, so I'm going to preach on this subject. I'm going to preach on anxiety. So now I'm going to go into the Bible. And I'm going to find verses that talk about anxiety. And then I'm just going to talk to you about that subject. That would be kind of a topical sermon. We don't typically do that here. Not that we never do that. What do we do here? We try to take a book of the Bible and we just work through it verse by verse and we are trying to expound what's in that passage. That's probably what you're doing in your small group. That's what you're doing in your, small, in your Sunday school class. Is we're just going to go into the scripture and search the scripture and expound it. Now here's what expository preaching is. Expository preaching or teaching would be making the main point of the text the main point of the message. Do you get that? The main point of the passage that we just read when I preach should be the main point of the message. Okay, the main point of the passage there that we read this morning is not that there was five loaves and two fishes and that they were barley loaves and that they were sardines. That's not the main point. That's not the main point at all. That's just a part of the story. The main point isn't even that there was a boy who was willing to give his lunch. What is, and this is what I want, want us to arrive at together, and I don't want you to put up your hand and give me all your harebrained ideas. I'm just joking. But, you know, think about this. What is the main point of this passage? If you were going to teach that, if you were going to build a sermon on that, and, or you're just studying it yourself, and you read this passage... What is the Holy Spirit trying to hammer home to us when you read those verses? What is the main point of this passage? Because whatever that is, 
That is what my sermon should be about when I preach it. Okay? So when I go to my study, and I usually start Sunday evening for the next week, and then I spend all week getting ready to do this. And when I go in there and I start studying a passage, what, I, what my first goal to find is what is the big picture here? What is the main point in what I just read? So what is it? Let's explore it together for a minute. The main point. Now, here's some interesting notes. There were 12 baskets left over. That's not the main point. But it is an interesting note. 12. Huh. I wonder why there were 12. Anybody got a clue? There are 12 apostles. Wow. Jesus can do math. Right? There, I mean, nothing happens by chance, is there? Nothing happens by chance with God. 12 apostles and 12 baskets. Wow. I bet Jesus is doing something to teach the apostles something here. Right? And there's some good things to learn there. Jesus said, don't, make, don't let anything go to waste. Hmm. We live in a wasteful society. Don't we? Don't let anything go to waste. Now, Jesus could have done another miracle. These guys could have said, well, Jesus just fed 5,000. Maybe tomorrow, you know, maybe he'll give us, you know, sirloin and taters, you know, and he could just do it. He doesn't need anybody to give us that meat. You know, he could just do it. He's God. And Jesus is teaching him something. Hey, guys, I did it this time, but you better not presume that I'll do it again. And you better not waste what I give you, because if you waste what I give you, I may not give you anything in the future. He's teaching them something. That's an important, interesting note that we should make. We should think of the willingness of a young boy. That's important. We could see Jesus' test of his followers. Jesus said here he was testing Philip. I was really tempted to build my whole sermon on that. Because it's an important point. But it ain't the main point. All of those are ancillary. And all of them are important points that we can draw out as we study this. But what is Jesus really doing here? The main point, what I want you to do with me, is I want you to look at the bookends to this text. Start with me again at the beginning. Verse 2. A large crowd is following him. Why? Oh, because he's going to give us eternal life. No? Why? They were enjoying the show. A lot of people follow Jesus because they like the show. Notice verse 14. When the people saw the sign he had just done, 
They said, indeed, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then, this is the big point. They were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew. No other gospel account brings that part of the story out. That is going to give us a context for Jesus' teaching beginning in verse 22. When Jesus alienates the entire crowd. This is the big picture. Here's the main point. I put it in these words. We could have probably said it some other way, but this is really the key. When Jesus' followers see what Jesus can do, we are tempted to make him into something that he isn't. It's called idolatry. We make a false god. When these people see what Jesus can do, just like you and I, we many times are tempted to make him a genie in a bottle who is going to give us every wish that we have. But that's not who he is. We could say it this way. Jesus' followers are always tempted to try to make him do what we want instead of submitting to his will. That's me. We are always tempted to try to make him fit our agenda, to make him our king now, to throw off Rome, to end the oppression, to bring in the kingdom. We want him to be our genie who gives us everything we want. And Jesus says, no. He wants us to submit to him. Now, let's look at it. This is an important statement. Jesus perceived they were going to take him by force. And I want you to notice this word force. They were going to use force. They were going to use the really the Greek word is the concept of violence. They were going to bring in the kingdom their way. This is the Messiah. This is the prophet. He fed 5,000. He could feed a whole army. He could equip a whole army just out of thin air. And we could march on Rome. And we could destroy Rome. And he could set up his kingdom. He is the king. And they're going to do it how? They were going to make him do it. They were going to make him do it. This, my friend, is a big error in American evangelicalism today. Because we have made 
the kingdom America. And we're going to get it back by force. And we, his followers, are tempted to try by force and human flesh to do what may not be God's will. Taken by force. Now, consider some things, okay? Jesus' earthly rule will never come by his followers using physical force to institute it. It ain't going to happen. Boom. The Crusades proved that point, right? The Crusades proved that. We see it all through church history, time and time again. Jesus' earthly rule on this planet is not going to become a reality because his church rises up and by force puts him on the throne in Jerusalem. That will not happen. It is not his means. My kingdom is not of this world. Think with me of this concept for a minute. The means that the crowd sought to use. What was the means they wanted to use? Force. And Jesus meant. Could Jesus force it? Yeah. Is he going to force it? Someday he will. When he comes back, when he returns and a double-edged sword proceeds from his mouth and all the armies of heaven follow him, no one will resist his will. All will fall before him and it is a done deal. He is Lord. But the crowd seeks to use force. Now, Dave read to us 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That was a very important passage because in there we find the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But they are mighty through God to tear down strongholds. But it's not an AK-47. It's not a hand grenade. It ain't even a ballot box. It ain't new legislation. It's not a Supreme Court that's in our camp. All, are all those things a blessing. Praise the Lord, they can be. But they will not bring the kingdom. They will not bring the kingdom. The means that the crowd sought to employ was force. We as believers need to understand the means of God's grace is the word. The preaching of the gospel. His power displayed in it. Not our physical, fleshly attempts to make him do what we want. Second thing I would have you notice is what was the reason for the crowd's reaction? Why? Why did they do this? It says specifically in the text, what did they do? They saw the miracle that he had done. This brings us back to the point that I made. Whenever we see what Jesus can do, we are always tempted to make him into something he is not. They saw what he could do. And then this is the close of the message. And I want us to think about it. This. What was the result? What was the result? Did Jesus say, okay, guys, let's go. We're going to march on Rome. Let's get an army together. What did it say he did? 
He left. He withdrew. And he went by himself to the mountain. The quickest way to get Jesus to withdraw his presence and his blessing from any work is to try to accomplish for him his work using the arm of flesh. When that happens, Jesus just silently walks away. And all of a sudden, a church or a ministry is left going through the motions, doing things, but Jesus is withdrawn. It happens all the time. Maybe one of the reasons that in American Christianity, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of hoopla, but there's not a lot of power. There's not a lot of Jesus owning it. And a lot of anointing by his spirit upon what's happening is because Jesus just silently, while we were having our pep rally, Jesus kind of walked out the back door. And he said, that's not what I'm all about. Jesus withdrew. We're going to go into this chapter, and we're going to see now how Jesus comes back, and he finds his disciples out on the Sea of Galilee. He walks to them on the water. And then he meets this crowd, and they say, how did you get here? And rather than taking them up on their desire to make him king, he goes to the core of their idolatry. He says, this is what I'm all about. May it be with us that we understand the why that Jesus came. He came in this stage of human history to seek and to save the lost. And he does it through his word and by his spirit because of the gospel. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, forgive us that so many times we try to do by the arm of flesh, which that which only you can do by the Spirit, by coercion or human effort. We try to manipulate things and make things happen. Instead of gathering together and praying. We just want to do something. We want to make our mark. Lord, ministries are important and all our outreach and efforts are vital, but Lord, if they are done with the arm of flesh, they fall flat. Help us, Lord, to understand these truths, to build our lives in this church upon it, and so I pray in Jesus' name.